0: the
1: other food is okay. yeah. right there. Okay. Let's
2: Uh,
3: let's get started. I want to uh, welcome everybody to the Mershon Center. I want to especially welcome uh, the guests of... Uh, uh, Sarah's uh, Social Protection and Distributive Conflict in the 21st Century Conference. It's nice when a conflict works out so well that uh, the political science conference says, yeah, we'd love to have him as our keynoter, and um, it's a great delight to uh, uh, have everybody here. I need to say a few words of thanks to um, uh, the political science department, the Department of Philosophy, the College of Humanities, and especially the Mershon Center and uh, Rick Herman, its director. They make all this possible. I want to invite everybody, if you haven't been bombarded already with invitations to a reception, a dessert reception at my house tonight, roughly 8.30. There are the directions out there. People are still arriving. I won't go on for too long. I do want to also remind everybody that Vaughn Lowe, the Chichely Professor of Law at All Souls Oxford, will be here Thursday, November 4th, at the law school at 3.30. Besides being a Chichely professor, um, uh, he's a barrister who represented the one of the barristers at the uh, Court of Justice on behalf of the Palestinian state uh, arguing the illegality of the wall. That will be Thursday. Our speaker today is Tim Scanlon, Alfred Professor of Natural Religion, Moral Philosophy, and Civil Polity at Harvard. I learned a couple things about Tim today that may be especially relevant to us in the philosophy department. Um, one, this is his first philosophy talk uh, at a high state, or first talk really at a high state, and uh, in many ways, uh, more importantly, he is about to become the father-in-law of Tommy Shelby. Uh, sometime when? This summer? In July. Um, I'm not going to go on uh, and read anything um, in the way of a bibliography of Tim's. Um, uh, He's probably best known for his uh, most recent work, What We Owe to Each Other. Um, He's also the author of a collection of his essays, The Difficulty of Tolerance. Um, Without further ado, Professor Scanlon, When Does Equality Matter? Thank you. Thank you
4: for coming. Thank you, Alan, and thanks thanks to all of you for coming. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be back in the Midwest where I was born and uh, to be in the swinging state of Ohio. Uh, from the perspective of Indiana, where I grew up, we always knew that Ohio was a, a more sophisticated uh, place, but I didn't know it was really swinging until, until, uh, until lately. Um, it's also a great pleasure to be introduced by having somebody mentioned the thing uh, about me that's really important and which I'm proudest of at the moment, uh, uh, rather than reading my bibliography, and that is that my daughter's about to marry Tommy, which is really delightful. uh, He uh, always speaks very warmly of of his time here in in Columbus. So my talk today is on equality. I I come to defend equality rather than to debunk or to bury it, although you may get the opposite uh, impression. My idea is that to defend equality, we need to get a narrower conception of exactly where it applies, when it applies, and and why it's uh, something important. So the first theme of my lecture, which was also the theme of a paper I wrote a number of years ago called The Diversity of Objections to Inequality, is that our reasons for being concerned with inequality are diverse. Um, and not all of them uh, are really properly uh, thought of as egalitarian, that is they're not all grounded in a concern for equality itself. And then i want to I want to go on trying to develop that the thoughts from that earlier paper, although those of you who've read that paper, there aren't very many people who' read it but in case there's one in the room. Um, uh, what I try to do is elaborate a little bit on some of those uh, some of the forms of objection to inequality that I Distinguished in that paper, uh, but then to talk a little bit more about how ideas of equality play out or might play out uh, in political uh, in political discourse. So I have a few lists in this paper, uh, and so since I have have these lists, I thought maybe I should try uh, I can see it's gonna be this. This watching this lecture may be more exciting <laughs> than uh, uh, than I normally. Mind uh let me find things here now? At least go right side up or upside down.
0: Right
4: side up. Okay. So let's try this. See whether we get. Here are some facts about equality. Let's add uh, a little bit. So I hope that's kind of here Here's here's a shocking fact. Uh, in the United States, the life expectancy for men is 73.4 years, whereas in uh, Malawi uh, it's only 37.1 uh, years. This seems there's something appalling about this. Uh, seems like something we ought to do something about. Uh, but what I'm interested in is what what equality's got to do with it. Uh, at the conference where I all you know, I'm not a social scientist, as you. Uh, i All know, so I don't do any research of this kind. When I, insofar as I learn anything of this sort, as you'll see, it's either from reading the newspaper or hearing somebody say something at a conference. So, at the conference where I heard somebody uh, present these statistics on on health, this was referred to as an example of the international life expectancy gap, and and that that title suggests that what's objectionable about it is is the gap, uh, but. I wonder, is that really so? I, I don't think that's really true. I think what's objectionable about it is how bad things are in Malawi. If things were considerably worse in the United States, we wouldn't say, well, at least the gap isn't so bad. <laughs> uh, there, um, now, maybe, maybe uh, the fact that things are a lot better here is relevant to the, to the question of whether the 37.1 years is really bad because it shows that it's possible for human species under favorable circumstances to live a lot longer than 37.1 point one years, but that's just re- relevant as you might say a fact about possibility. It isn't uh, doesn't matter much whether we're doing it or or not. Or so it seems. Uh, so it seems to uh, so it seems to me. Um, so here's another one. Uh, the life expectancy of black men in the ten least healthy counties in the United States is 61 years, uh, compared with the life expectancy of 76.4 years. Uh, for white men in the ten healthiest counties. Now, that isn't as shocking yet, maybe as the first one, but it's still pretty shocking. And I'm inclined to think, for reasons that I will try to defend later, that equality has more to do with number two than it does with number one. That is, there's something objectionable about the fact that there is that inequality, whereas in number one, it's not the inequality that's really that's really bothering us, or so. Uh, so it seems to me. Although I'll, I'll need to explain why I think that's that's true. Okay, here's something. I, 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 a couple of years ago, I did a version, an earlier version of this paper at a at a conference uh, um, of Israeli and and, and uh, American uh, social scientists and, and philosophers and lawyers on uh, in it e- equality in divided societies. Just talking about the United States and Israel mostly. And some one of the Israeli uh, constitutional lawyers. Presented a paper about uh, equal protection in, in Israel, and they they gave this figure. I can't I can't vouch for it, but they they all said that they'd actually gone out and surveyed and found that in villages. Um, Inhabited by uh, Israeli Arabs, these are Israeli citizens who are, who are of Arab descent. Um, the level of basic services, in particular, paved streets, sanitation, and access to water, was much lower than it was in otherwise comparable villages inhabited by uh, Jewish Israeli citizens. I, I, I can't vouch for this, but um, uh, this is what I was told, and, and seems even seems to be even more clear than in number two that that insofar as we think of this as objectionable, it's the inequality that's objectionable. It that isn't quite clear what level of sanitation or what level of... You know, nothing said here about exactly what level of provision of these services is, is, uh, is involved, uh, but the point is that there's a large disparity, and it seems to me that even if we were to move the, the, the absolute levels up and down, the fact that there's a large disparity in this situation seems, uh, seems objectionable, and I think that something like that is true perhaps not quite so glaringly in number two uh, as well. Okay, number four, um, students in public grade schools in some districts in my home, current home state of Massachusetts uh, receive a much better education than students in other districts in the same state. In fact, it's even true within Boston, uh, within Boston and its suburbs, so a huge variety in the quality of the education uh, that's delivered. People are getting much better education in Newton, say, than they are in Mattapan. Uh, and they're probably getting a better education in Newton than they are in Lemonster, which is out in the north central part of the state, which is a rather impoverished, uh, relatively impoverished uh, area. So again, it seems that the, the... that's another case where it seems that inequality uh, is at stake, and, and I assume probably also is true five, that all these students are probably getting a better education than most of the students are uh, in, in Malawi, um, but in that case uh, again, I don't have anything against Malawi. I don't. I, I think the people ought to be getting better education, but but I don't think that the inequality is quite as relevant in number five as it is seems to be in in number four. Finally, we um, yeah. have something often. Mentioned or at least referred to in presidential uh, debates and so on, although not quite, people don't quite actually bring out the figures. The distribution of income in the United States is highly unequal and the inequality seems to be growing. Um, uh, here, here's a quote from Paul Krugman in the New York Times. He says, Over the past 30 years, most people have seen only modest salary increases. The average salary in America, expressed in 1998 dollars adjusted for inflation, rose from in 1970 to $35,864 in 1999. That's about a 10% increase over 29 years. Progress, but not much. Over the same period, however, according to Fortune magazine, the average real annual compensation for the top 100 CEOs in the United States went from $1.3 million, that's 39 times the pay of an average worker, to $37.5 million. That is, more than a thousand times the pay of the average uh, worker. So one question one might ask about this is, this there seems to be something objectionable about it, so in, in what way does the fact that it, there's an inequality here uh, have to do, you know, lie at the root of our objection? And how could we spell out our sense that it ought to be uh, more equal? If it ought to be more equal, why ought it? Uh, to be uh, more equal. Why is the inequality itself, if it is objectionable, uh, objectionable? Now, I believe that in the first case, the the, uh, ca- the case of the international life expectancy gap, that our concern uh, is properly largely humanitarian, as I've already said. That is, uh, what's, what, what really should grab our moral interest there is the... Uh, Sad conditions of the people in Malawi that lead to their living such short lives. Um, the fact that the United States is so much wealthier is relevant, if it is at all, uh, to the idea of where means might be found. Uh, we could, if we if we could transfer some money from wealthier countries to uh, Malawi, that would be a way of relieving. And maybe we could maybe we could raise the the life expectancy very significantly by a small transfer of money, which would only have a minimum impact on life expectancy, maybe. In these wealthier countries, it seems like we ought we ought to do that. So the inequality provides us, you might say, with a suggestion about means for relieving the misery. Uh, but it, the inequality isn't what's driving our moral concern in that example, uh, or so it seems. Uh, so it seems to me these reasons don't seem in that case genuinely egalitarian because genuinely egalitarian reasons for reducing inequality should be ones that take the disparity in people's situations as the thing which is uh, to be in itself eliminated or reduced. More specifically, it seems to me that egalitarian objections to inequality are both comparative uh, and nonspecific as to level. They're comparative because what they're concerned with is the relation between the levels of benefit that different people enjoy, and they're unspecific as to level in that they remain the same even if you move the absolute levels of the two groups uh, up and down. It's not that people are entitled to any particular level of of, of this good in question. What's objectionable is the fact that they aren't getting the same uh, amount of it. Now I think it's the comparative and unspecific character of egalitarian claims that gives rise to some of the familiar objections to those claims. I think it's easy to understand why individuals should be concerned with their absolute level of well-being. They want to live longer. They want to be more comfortable. They want to have more uh, enjoyments uh, and opportunities of a variety of kinds. Um, But it might be asked why they should be concerned with the comparative level of their well-being or their opportunities and somebody else's. It's this emphasis on comparative rather than absolute benefits that gives rise to the thought in some quarters that a concern with equality is basically an expression of envy, uh, and hence something that it, we ought to be a little bit suspicious of. It's one thing to want to be better off yourself, but why are you worried simply about the fact that somebody else is better off, and you think that the fact that they're better off than you is in itself uh, objectionable? Uh, and similarly, I think that there's something it's the comparative aspect of egalitarian concerns that partly gives the plausibility to Robert Nozick's uh, famous objection to uh, pattern theories of justice. So why, why? What's so great about patterns? Why should we be concerned that, the, that whether the distribution of goods fits or doesn't fit a certain pattern? Of course, he's also concerned with what he considers to be the interferences with liberty that are required in order to preserve a pattern. But I think apart from that, there's the question of what's so great about, what's so great about the patterns themselves? Well, I want to now consider some answers to these questions. If supposing that that, uh, a proper egalitarian concern should be both imperative and not uh, claim to a particular level but claim uh, uh, claim certain relation between one's life and somebody else's, how could we motivate, other than by uh, admitting that it's envy, how could we motivate an egalitarian uh, concern? So let me consider here so you can see I'm not unaccustomed to public speaking, but I am unaccustomed to using these visual words. <laughs>
0: um,
4: we might We might uh, consider some uh, possibilities. Um, now, I've already considered number one there in the first case. I probably should have waited until I was done. And put this. So I'll slide that up. Um, if you think historically about what are the great examples of objectionable inequality? Um, the ones that come most immediately to mind are inequalities in status, things like slavery, um, serfdom, uh, inequality uh, between genders, other 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 kinds of status inequalities, inequality between races that mark in which certain people are marked out as inferior members of society, not entitled to the same benefits, not entitled to the same standing uh, as others, and there seems just to be something objectionable about. <laughs> That idea of status, that being marked out as inferior in the society is, let's say in itself uh, something that that uh, people are right. It's not mere envy that they don't want to be marked out as, as inferior, uh, a perfectly, uh, perfectly legitimate objection. Um, now that's a direct objection to inequality. Right? But you might say, well, we've gotten, we hope, we're gradually struggling to get beyond uh, cl- differences. Simply in status, uh, but a similar objection might apply to, to inequalities. The same at root, the same objection might apply to inequalities that weren't on the on the face of them uh, inequalities in status. For example, uh, extreme economic inequality can have the fact that some people in society, the poor people, have to live in a way that's regarded as no fit way for anybody to live in, by, by, the, by the standards of the rest of the society. Right? They, have to, they can't dress in a way that's regarded as respectable. Uh, they live in a way that's regarded as you know, subhuman, animal-like. Uh, um, you, know, you, you can hear the, the cliché. So it seems, you might say, obj- one, one objection to economic inequality is if it produces... Uh, this feeling of, of uh, you know, reasonable feeling of, of, it, of inferiority on the part of some people. They simply can't, you might say, hold their heads up in society uh, um, if they have to live you know, in, a, in a way that's that, uh, that different from others. Now, of course, may, maybe this, you might say this objection is stronger or weaker depending on how, how high or low the, the, the absolute levels are. So it may not be completely unspecific as to level, but it, it is a kind of objection that might be raised. Um, to differences in in uh, people's level of well-being even if those differences weren't by definition differences in status they might as it were produce um, objectionable differences uh, in status now this seems to me a, this is a, a a genuinely egalitarian idea and it's an idea uh, that um, as I say has fueled uh, a lot of the uh, people's objections to uh, to inequality, contrasted with the first idea, which I said is basically a humanitarian one. So, third, I think inequalities can also be objectionable in certain cases uh, because they give some people an unacceptable degree of control over others. So here particularly these are just rank inequalities in political authority, political power, ability to vote, ability to take part in politics, or ability to influence the political process might be objectionable uh, on on, on, uh, on that ground but also maybe economic inequalities are objectionable on the ground that uh, people who own all the sources uh, in society have too much control over what other how other people can live or what kind of jobs they can get what kind of products they can buy uh, where, where they can live even maybe uh, and that's a kind of control um, that is itself uh, uh, objectionable now some kinds of, of, of historical Socialist objections to inequality are I think more, more like this than, than they are purely distributed that is they 're not simply objections to the to unfairness and distribution they're objections to the kind of control that that one class uh, can exercise over another they 're freedom based you might say rather than, rather than uh, distribution based but that that's a, so that 's a, a second classical source of, uh, of objections to inequalities Third or fourth, where am I down here? Uh, in- inequalities can be objectionable on what I'll call procedural grounds. Uh, if we're concerned with the fairness of certain processes, uh, people's the equality of the standpoints from which people enter into these processes, certain kinds of competition I have in mind here, uh, uh, can, can affect wh- whether those processes are overall fair. So two familiar examples. Where there's great... Very great inequality in family income and wealth, that's at least if it's not somehow compensated for by the public provision of education and so on. An individual's process of su- prospects of success in a competitive market are going to be affected enormously by the wealth of the families into which they are born. So, fairness of the e- e- equality of opportunity and fairness of competition in the economic sphere will depend very much on whether there is some kind of equality in starting points that is preserved. Right? Great inequality of starting points can make a competitive process uh, unfair. Similarly, in the political case, great inequalities in wealth and income, as we we're, are as we're very familiar with, um, can undermine the fairness of political institutions by giving people more power to com- command the public media, uh, more power to get their message out, more power to influence politicians, more power to run for o- more ability to run for office themselves, and so on. So, insofar as our political institutions um, need to be fair, the fact that there's great inequality of an economic sort in society can can uh, undermine that fairness. So that, that, that's objectionable. Now, none of these objections to inequality that I've t- thought of as, as more closely egalitarian, that's number two, number three, or number number four, uh, is in itself a, a direct concern with equality of outcomes, right? Uh, it isn't say, look, people are just entitled to equal shares of certain goods. And we might think, surely, there are at least some cases uh, where what egalitarians are correctly claiming is that people not, not only are entitled to have a fair starting point from which to compete for unequal uh, resources, but that there, those processes ought to deliver equal payoffs at, at the end. So this brings me to the question whether there are circumstances in which justice requires not just equality of starting places or relative equality of starting places but actually demands equality of outcomes. Well, we might say that if the members of a group have equal claims to a certain benefit, then a distributive procedure that's supposed to be responsive to these claims will be fair only if it yields equal shares as a result. Well, what would be an example of this? Well, suppose uh, we have some partners who've entered into some kind of enterprise together. They've contributed the same amount of, resu- of, of capital, the same amount of resources to the uh, to, to the enterprise and they've also contributed the same amount of talent and work to the enterprise so we might say if that's true then it would be unfair if the division of the profits were to go lopsidedly to one rather than to the other they have equal claim to these the, 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 the product of this enterprise whatever it is belongs to them and they have equal claim on it so if whatever distributive mechanism they have for, for for paying out the profits uh, will be objectionable if it doesn't give them the same the same share. Uh, could could we generalize from that to a claim about social institutions? Well, in a way, uh, one one part of Rawls's argument in his famous book A Theory of Justice um, uses a form uh, of this idea as the as the starting point. You might say society is. A, a cooperative scheme for mutual benefit, he says. And behind the original position, uh, people people are all all um, see themselves as cooperating members. Uh, if they have to choose without knowing their places in society, Rawls says they have no reason to accept less than an equal share. So there, that's something like this partnership idea, right? That society is a cooperative venture for mutual advantage. And looked at from behind the original position. People are like these partners, that is, they're all, they're all participants in, in the scheme, so why should they accept anything less than an equal share? Now Rawls then goes on to argue that, that it's rational for these people who are choosing principles of distribution for a society to move away from what he calls this benchmark of equality, uh, insofar as moving away doesn't require anybody to get less, right? They say people could it 's natural for them in the beginning to claim that they ought to have equal shares, but if some way of, of <laughs> providing unequal shares would have the effect that everybody would get more than they otherwise uh, than they otherwise would under any more equal scheme, then they ought to accept that too right this is the famous the famous uh, difference principle now i 'm not going to pursue you'll, you'll, I'm, this is not the lecture on roles, although he 's going to come up a few more times uh, i 'm not going to pursue that, but I just want to point out what's what 's What's controversial there? Well, one thing's controversial, there is this idea. Well, should is, is a society really like a like this partnership example of mine in the sense that everybody entering into it has an equal, equal claim? That just sets aside the idea that well, maybe there are differences in what people contribute. Maybe, uh, maybe something should be rewarded. Now Rawls would say, well, insofar as that's true, that'll be recognized by the difference principle. So the difference provides a mechanism for testing arguments that people ought to get. Uh, some people ought to get more, and other people get less, and that's at least a sufficient condition for that being for that being so. But but um, this way of putting it, this saying, look, if people have uh, an equal claim, if my part, if, the, if the assumption of my partnership example holds, if people have an equal claim to the pr- product of a certain activity, then a system for distributing. Uh, the, the benefits of that activity ought, at least prima facie, give them equal shares. Um, that's a fairly weak principle insofar as the antecedent is very strong. <laughs> it builds a lot of egalitarianism right into that into that antecedent, as Paul's example show. So I, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to explore in general. Uh, I don't have a general view about what are the cases in which that antecedent can be made plausible. Um, but. I do want to consider one special case, or one class of special cases of of uh, in which that something like that antecedent might be true. Now here's a first approximation to the principle that i that I want to uh, develop. Um, if each member of a group has the same claim to be provided with a certain kind of benefit, then, absent special justification they should receive this benefit to the same degree the problem with this principle is that it seems false Uh, every member of the group of people who are in extreme need and whom I could help uh, have a claim on me for help but it doesn't follow that I have to benefit all of them equally or even that I need a strong reason to benefit some rather than others or so it seems I mean I think I ought to benefit if I could benefit I ought to be benefiting people whom I could help more than I can, but it doesn't seem to me that everybody whose claim is simply the claim that, well, I could help them uh, and I ought to do it. It, I can help them at little cost myself and I ought to do it. I don't think there's any claim that I have to distribute that that, uh, beneficence equally to everybody who falls in that uh, that claim. So in order to make this principle that I stated defensible, it needs to be tightened up somehow. I think what we need to do is to add uh, something about the stringency of the claims that the people have on me. So I'll consider the following. If each member of a group has the same claim that some individual or institutional agent must provide it with a certain benefit, and if that agent is obligated to respond to all of these claims, that's what I'm, what I'm adding, right? Uh, if we say everybody's got a claim on this agent, and the agent is obligated to respond to every one of those claims, then the agent must, absent special justification, provide each member of the group with the same level of benefit. That's a prima facie claim uh, to fill in an example of my number five. So let's talk about this a little bit. This narrows the range of applicability of the claim uh, and rules out counterexamples like the one I just mentioned about people whom I could help, since I'm not obligated to respond to absolutely all of them. Uh, moreover, it seems to explain some clear cases. Uh, it seems to explain, for example, what's objectionable about my example of unequal provision of services to Israeli villages. might say the Israeli government is obliged to provide um, street, clean street, sanitation and so on to these villages um, and they all have the same claim on it and it's claimed that, they, that the government ought to be responding to, is obligated to respond to all of these claims. Um, So there's something objectionable about its responding to some of them much more fully than it responds to others. That's not specific as to level because depending on the wealth of the country and the difficulty providing the services, it might be all right to have paved streets to a certain degree or not to, have such, not to have such well-paved streets, right? What's objectionable is responding to the need for paved streets in one locality to a much higher degree than you do to these streets in the other sites. So the idea is that, that even, if, even if what you start off with isn't a claim to equality, isn't a claim to any particular level of service, or, or claim to any particular level of service, it's just a claim to have this good provided but it's the same claim, then it seems you can bootstrap uh, from that um, to uh, the idea that there's something objectionable about the distributive agent not providing uh, equal, uh, equal benefit. And this principle also seems to me to provide some support to the other example, as I mentioned, about education. Uh, insofar as state governments in the U.S. are obligated to provide education throughout the state, Since the claims of various communities to state aid are the same, the state government ought to respond to these claims with uh, equal resources. This is something that's been thought out in the the Supreme Courts of many states, right? There's New Jersey, for example, there's a a fair and effective, whatever, full and effective education clause in the state constitution. So the state Supreme Court has been fighting a battle with the legislature uh, trying to persuade them that they can't, that it's incompatible with this to allow funding for education to depend entirely on the tax base of the, of the community, or at least even to the degree that they, that they do this. So that there, there's a particular constitutional principle that's being, that's being interpreted, but I'm claiming that there is a moral idea that's, uh, that's, that's, that's behind that. Um, now, it's difficult, on the other hand, to get, to get this same argument started in regard to differences in education internationally. Because it's difficult to identify any agent that has the same obligation to people in Leominster, Massachusetts, and Malawi, whatever, to provide uh, education. Uh, similarly, the differences in life expectancy—if uh, you say differences in life expectancy within a country—if you think that the government is on a, is under an obligation to provide health care to people within its boundaries, um, if it's providing much more. Uh, it's a running a system in which people have much more access to health care in some uh, parts of the country or parts of the state than in the, than the others. That seems objectionable on grounds of equality. Whereas in my first example about the difference in life expectancy in the United States and Malawi, we might say, um, there's no agency, uh, there's, no, there's no single agency that uh, um, is, is obligated. To everybody, to provide those services, and that's why equality doesn't seem as much an issue there as it does in the other examples. So these examples bring out the two salient features of the argument for equal benefit that I've been describing here under my number five. First, the argument depends upon the existence of some institutional agent against which various individuals or groups have claims, namely the same claim to be provided with benefits. And second, uh, it depends on the nature and stringency of those of those claims. Uh, Now, I'm I'm going to give this paper in in Germany next month, so I I put some examples in here, having to do with Germany, but this one might, this one, uh, I'll read this one anyway, since it does seem to illustrate the point. On the view I've been suggesting, um, the unification of Germany uh, gave rise to two kinds of claims of equality that didn't exist before 1989. Um, When the country was divided... People from one half of the country were not in competition for jobs with people in the other half of the country. Right. So there was no requirement that say equal education or equal access to um, to, to jobs be provided to people in the eastern zone and the western zone. It was two markets. So there wasn't there wasn't any institution whose fairness as a system of, equal, of equality of opportunity was 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 an issue. So. Um, a, 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 an objection to equality based on procedural justice of the kind I mentioned in my earlier list came into existence once you create a unified market with a unified set of institutions about which you can ask the question: Are they just? Are they meeting the requirements of equality of opportunity? Second, when you when you go from from having these two countries to having one country, you create new uh, obligations of the kind I was talking about here under number five. You have a single uh, uh, single distributive agent that's that's has an obligation to provide services to people in, in, in the whole area. So it's a question of, of equality of provision of the services—those those questions of equality didn't exist before, but they come into existence uh, once, um, uh, once the um, uh, country has been has been unified. Okay. So um, those are some examples that that the sorry. Those are those are what I've tried to do is give these examples, uh, describe what I regard here as these different um, reasons for objecting to inequality in different circumstances and to try to say that those uh, differences explain some of our reactions uh, to the cases I mentioned uh, at the beginning. Um, Now, I conjecture, although I'm not confident that this is right, that these uh, five, including the humanitarian one, these five kinds of reasons taken together uh, may provide a full account of of all the cases in which we have reason to object to inequality of a substantive sort. I'm not sure that that's right, but I thought about it for one I haven't come up with other, with with powerful examples that that aren't captured by one of these. I'd be interested whether you have some suggestions. I'm not committed to the idea that this is enough, but but uh, that's a hypothesis that I that I'm uh, working with. What I want to do in the rest of this talk is to examine some of the objections to inequality that that I've been summarizing here a little farther uh, and to consider uh, what light the diversity of these egalitarian ideas sheds on some questions of equality that come up in in political argument. Now, some of the reasons for objecting to inequality that I mentioned are essentially forward-looking. That is, they appeal to the consequences that disparities in levels of benefit would have. This is most obvious in, in, in my third category of what I call, sorry, fourth category, uh, what I call competition cases. Uh, when people are in competition for certain goods, the fairness of the competition and its likely outcomes will depend heavily on the relative positions from which the competition's com- competitors begin. Um, now, my reactions, as I've already said, to some of the examples I cited at the beginning can be explained on these forward-looking grounds. For example, I said that differences in the quality of education within a given state in the US or within the US as a whole seem more objectionable on egalitarian grounds than differences between equality of education in the US and foreign countries. Uh, And this may reflect the assumption, perhaps it's contestable now, that students within a given state or, or within the same country are in competition for the same jobs or ought to be able to compete fairly for those jobs but that there's no similar competition between students in the U.S. and students in, say, for example, Malawi. Now, it might be claimed that in an era of globalization, this will cease to be the case. Um, So if we not only have a worldwide competition, but then you also have to add and have institutions whose fairness is in question as, as a framework within which that competition can take place, then. Then the, this kind of egalitarian consideration might then spread to the whole globe. This is the way I suggested it could spread from Western Germany and Eastern Germany considered separately to the whole the whole um, the whole country. I said I said the move from Western to Eastern, you know, gave rise to two kinds of claims of equality. One was because there's now an agent that has to provide a good, and the second was this competitive one that we're now uh, we now have a single competitive system whose fairness. Uh, which, can be, which can be assessed on grounds of, of fairness. Now, I think so. So this is one way in which proximity may have may have a bearing on equality, Right? Equality is 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 relevant, or inequality is objectionable a certain way within a, a, a country in in a way that it may not be objectionable uh, on on a more global on a more global basis. And I think that my my. Um, Uh, Second and third, I'll talk about the second one here, uh, reasons for objecting to inequality may also depend upon proximity. When people can reasonably compare their lives and conditions with each other, they have to appear in public, in the same public space let's say, differences in economic level can lead to reasonable feelings of loss of esteem and shame. so, this leaves rise to objectionable inequalities, but this, is, this objection is reasonable only where there 's contact of this sort between the different groups. People have to actually appear before one another, interact uh, in the same, uh, in the same public space. Now, it might be claimed again that globalization and the spread the worldwide spread of media uh, Undermine this effect of proximity. You might say, "Well, now that everybody can see the same sitcoms, <laughs> everybody sees maybe a lot of the same commercials. So people get have feelings of justified loss of self-respect and esteem by thinking they aren't living the way people are in this imaginary uh, suburb that's pictured uh, on these commercials or in the sitcoms." I, I don't know whether that's true, but uh, it doesn't seem to me. See, you can. Look at that as a kind of fantasy, or it wouldn't be unreasonable to look at that as a kind of fantasy. And the way it might it'd be unreasonable for me to feel inferior to people in some, some uh, science fiction uh, story or something who had powers far beyond, far beyond mine. If the people that I interact with on a day-to-day basis don't have those, don't don't have those powers. But I, I mention this just some, it's an objection that might be, might be raised. Now, my my second, third, and fourth. Uh, reasons for objecting to inequality share this forward-looking character. That is, they all have to do with the consequences that uh, inequalities would have for other factors, which aren't in themselves essentially egalitarian. But these objections differ in the degree to which they are based egalitarian objections. I think the aim of avoiding stigmatizing differences in status, my number two, um, appeals to an ideal of fraternity that, as I've said, has an important basis in the egalitarian uh, tradition. Objections to concentrations of power may sound less purely egalitarian. Freedom from domination isn't the same thing as unequal status. But the idea of domination with others, uh, domination by others as the main evil of unequal societies is familiar in the republican strain of egalitarian thought, and as I mentioned earlier also in certain strains of, of socialism. Um, the idea of equality of opportunity, which comes under my number four, is less purely egalitarian since it presupposes the legitimacy of the unequal positions or unequal rewards that people are competing for. It says these these inequalities are all right, provided that people uh, have a fair chance uh, to compete for them. It presupposes that these inequalities are justified because it is this justification that provides the basis for distinguishing uh, from selection according to merit on the one hand, from bias or favoritism on the other. If rewarding special benefits according to merit were no better than favoritism, because these inequality, inequalities in outcome are unjustifiable anyway, then the requirement of equality of opportunity, which is based on the distinction between merit and bias, uh, would lose its point. But because equality of opportunity is compatible in this way with unequal rewards, and because it appears to say nothing about the level of inequality that, that might be acceptable in these rewards, this idea of equality of opportunity has something of a bad name among egalitarians, and it may seem not to be an egalitarian doctrine at all. Now, I think this bad reputation is to some degree undeserved, and I wanna, so I want to take a little detour to explore this question a little further. First, a matter of definition. Uh, equality of opportunity properly understood, goes beyond the idea that it's illegitimate to select individuals for positions of special advantage on grounds other than the possession of the relevant skills. Let's say equality of opportunity goes beyond the idea that bias and favoritism are objectionable. Meaningful equality of opportunity uh, requires not merely the absence of overt discrimination, uh, but also requires equal opportunity to develop one's talent. Rawls expressed this stronger requirement in what he (coughs) called the the requirement of fair equality of opportunity, which is this. Those who are at the same level of talent and ability and have the same willingness to use them should have the same prospects of success regardless of their initial place in the social system. It's one of the striking things, looking back at a theory of justice, uh, that this requirement is introduced by Rawls with very little argument. It's placed rather inconspicuously in the, in the structure of his theory as what he calls a rider on the difference principle. And many sections are spent arguing for the difference principle, uh, and this rider just kind of goes along for the ride, there isn't, isn't all that much argument um, given, um, given for it. Um, now maybe Rawls didn't think it was necessary to offer an extended argument for this rider because he thought it was uncontroversial and fairly widely accepted. It's true that the idea of equality of opportunity enjoys quite wide acceptance. It's recognized, or at least paid lip lip service to, even by people who wouldn't themselves be considered egalitarians. When a theory of justice first appeared, for example, the book was attacked from the right in in the public interest and other uh, journals of that sort. Um, on the ground that the difference principle went beyond equality of opportunity, which the critics thought was swell and to be admired, and required equality of results or, or equality of outcome, which they thought was that the devil incarnate, had to be had to be fought at, at every step. Um, the book was also attacked from the left as insufficiently egalitarian. Uh, in part because it took no stand on the question, as they saw it, of ownership of the means of production, but also because the difference principle seemed to them uh, to possibly allow very significant inequalities, as long as the benefits of these trickled down, and as long as equality of opportunity, which they regarded as a kind of SOP, uh, was maintained. So both sides, the right and the left focused their criticism on the difference principle, although they understood it in different ways, and both sides largely ignored the requirement of equality of opportunity. The right ignored it because they favored it, the left ignored it because they scorned it as a a false egalitarianism since it was in principle compatible uh, with uh, large differences uh, in outcome. Now I think both sides of this this debate, I'm I'm taking you back here to the 19th, 70s which is I know ancient history um, uh, we didn't have anything like the kind of inequality then that we have now right? although <laughs> there was much more talk about it <laughs> uh, anyway return with me now to those thrilling days of yesteryear uh, Okay. Um, I think both of these sides were mistaken although I think actually that the right was in one respect closer to being correct um, they were correct in, in seeing that the difference principle would require a level of economic equality that was much greater than that enjoyed in any industrialized country that we, that we know of. Uh, but they were also mistaken, I think, about the idea of equality of opportunity. That is, in the form uh, of Rawls's idea of fair equality of opportunity, this is not a familiar, non-controversial SOP, uh, uh, but but even taken apart from any substantive restriction on the degree of inequality, it's a very demanding uh, requirement, or so I believe. So long as there is very significant economic inequality between families, at least anything like the degree of inequality that prevails in our society, um, this difference, absent very aggressive social intervention to provide support services, education, uh, preschool training, and so on, is going to result in very unequal chances for people equally talented to uh, succeed uh, in, in, in the economic uh, economic marketplace. Um, as Rawls says, speaking here of a, of a pure market society, although not, not quite of ours, it's difficult to see how fair equality of opportunity could be achieved in such a society if, re- if rewards are entirely determined by the market, at least he says, as long as the institution of family is preserved. Um, that remark also has caused him a lot of trouble on the right, that, that he's said to be anti family. Um, of course, other people think that he's too pro-family anyway so So equality of opportunity if it's understood as what Rawls calls fair equality of opportunity rather than simply an absence of discrimination serves I think or can serve as a kind of egalitarian Trojan horse Um, because achieving fair equality of opportunity under many circumstances requires if not exact equality of outcomes then at least something much closer to equality of outcome than we've seen in many of the societies uh, that we are Familiar, I'll return familiar with. I'll return in a moment to the question of what we should make of this. This conclusion is, I think, reinforced when we consider the question of the fairness of the political system. In later writing, Rawls says that in a just society, the fair value of political liberties, as he calls it, should be preserved. Um, This is in in his essay, his lecture, uh, The Basic Liberties and Their Priority, which is one of the ones collected in political liberalism. Rawls formulates this requirement in terms that are strikingly similar to the idea of fair equality of opportunity in the economic realm, although like that idea, it doesn't seem to have gotten much play in the discussion of his work. What's required, he says, is, quote, that citizens similarly gifted and motivated have roughly an equal chance of influencing the government's policy and of attaining positions of authority, irrespective of their economic and social class. That's a very powerful. That's a very powerful requirement. Right? Uh, not not uh, no triviality. Now it seems to me that our experience here, clearly in our country, clearly indicates that this requirement is very difficult, if not impossible, to fulfill as long as income and wealth are largely determined by market forces, and as long as the price of access to the public media uh, is also. Determined by 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 the market, so it it doesn't seem uh, it seems it it would be hard to get there from here. That's what we're learning in in the struggle over over campaign finance. Very hard to figure out how to do it. So my number four here may express the idea that procedural fairness sometimes requires quite a high level of substantive equality of outcome. That's the Trojan horse argument. But this argument can be applied in two different directions. On the one hand, we can ask what background conditions are necessary in order for the requirements of procedural equality to be fulfilled. We start off with the idea of procedural equality. We say, okay, we're going to set up a society in which they're fulfilled. What's it got to be like? And the conclusion that comes out is, well, people can't be too different in their levels of income uh, and wealth. Arguing this way, we can reach the conclusion with Rawls that political fairness and equality of opportunity are very difficult, if not impossible, to achieve unless inequality of income and wealth is curtailed. Um, So even without looking at what the content of the difference principle itself is, you're going to have a big constraint on equality, sorry, a big constraint on inequality just from the so-called writer taken alone. Now, this seems quite a quite a robust conclusion in the philosophy seminar. Uh, Because in the philosophy seminar, what we're concerned with is what would a just society have to be like? Um, It's much less clear, however, what this conclusion comes to in practice, that is to say, in actual politics. On the one hand, it seems as if it ought to be a powerful conclusion there as well. Uh, As I've said, procedural fairness, at least in the form of equality of opportunity, is much more widely accepted as a goal than any kind of equality of outcome. So it would seem that an argument that relied on this widely accepted premise of equality of opportunity, even the right accepted that or said they accepted it in, in, in reviewing a the theory of justice, then an argument based on that widely shared premise might have very considerable political force. But if we actually look out there in the world, it doesn't seem to have much force. People don't seem to be very head up about about, about um, preserving equality of opportunity, uh, at least in the strong in the strong Rawlsian. Um, sense. Now perhaps this is because it's not widely understood or appreciated what true equality of opportunity uh, amounts to, what it, would, what it would require. But there's a further problem, that even if people took on board the big difference between near absence of discrimination and genuine equality of opportunity wherever, where, whatever social class you're born into, there would remain the question from a political point of view of implementation it's one thing to talk about about what a just society have to be like in the philosophy seminar. It's another thing to figure out what we ought to do given where we are, uh, faced with the fact that there's this clash between great inequalities of income and wealth, which we see entrenched all around us, and uh, this requirement of equality of opportunity, both in the economic sphere and in the and in the political sphere, which we suppose I'm supposing now are are all um, committed to. It's one thing to think that justice requires greater equality and quite another way, quite another thing to identify and accept measures that would actually achieve it in a politically feasible way. So frustration on this front may lead us to apply the idea of procedural fairness in the second of the two ways I mentioned. The first was to start with the idea of procedural fairness and then draw a conclusion about what uh, what level of inequality was acceptable. The other conclusion is to start with the goal of of trying to achieve as much equality of opportunity as we can, given that we don't have uh, the the requisite level of equality of of wealth and income, and ask, is there any way we can struggle to get toward it? What what can we do to try to get closer to there uh, from from here? Um, This seems like a more politically uh, uh, relevant uh, question to ask. Now, our experience it, so far with the campaign finance issue suggests a rather discouraging response to the question. It's very difficult to prevent high levels of economic inequality from producing objectionable inequality and political influence. This isn't merely a political problem, even leaving aside the difficulties of getting Congress to agree... On implementing uh, political reform that given that it might threaten incumbents and so on even leaving aside that problem I don't think we've found a solution to the problem even in principle that is we don't have I at least, having, even though I thought about this I don't have a very clear conception of how of what, of what piece of legislation I would propose to the Congress to, to constrain um, the political process in a way that would achieve something like uh, political fairness given where we're starting from uh, certainly, I don't see a way of doing that consistent with the First Amendment. I mean, I, I don't accept the, the Buckley versus Vallejo distinction, uh, decision. I think that when they said that it's entirely foreign to the First Amendment to constrain the speech opportunities of some to enhance the opportunities of others, uh, that seems to be simply false. I and mean, Robert's rules of order do that. Uh, and all kinds of procedural requirements about public speaking, uh, time limits and so on, constrain the speech opportunities of some in order to enhance Speech opportunities of others. So I, I think that the Supreme Court got off on the wrong foot there. But, supposing you say, okay, now you can write on a blank slate. How are you going to constrain access to the media in a way that 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 makes things better and doesn't uh, prevent individuals uh, outside of political parties, for example, from having a, a reasonable kind of access to the public forum? I, I, I mean, I'll be. Thrilled if in the discussion period somebody comes up with a way of doing this, but it seems to me not only a political problem, but it's it's a it's a conceptual problem, it's a problem problem in principle of how to do that. Now, if we shift from the political area, political fairness, back to the economic realm, I think the picture is actually uh, slightly less discouraging. Good public schools, at least in principle, right? good public schools including programs for preschool children from disadvantaged homes and prevention of the kind of poverty that produces these destructive home environments could go a long way toward achieving a meaningful degree of equality of opportunity maybe not the full equality of prospects that rural states but still a significant degree a significant degree of, of equality of opportunity might be might be achieved. Now, these steps are very difficult to achieve in practice. It's hard to figure out how to make the schools better. It's hard to figure out uh, how to uh, you know, raise the poverty level and, 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 and keep it there. But it it doesn't seem to be quite as hard as it is in, in actually as it is in the political at least conceptually. You, you think, there's got to be ways of doing that. Right? Some societies are doing a lot better at that than we are. And even though we've got some problems they don't have, uh, we ought to be able Given how wealthy we are, uh, to do to do something about that. Now, one reason why progress, I think, is easier to conceive of in the economic case than in the political case, uh, is that what's required uh, in that case is mainly to decrease inequality by improving the the status of the poor. Right. Uh, uh, if you have good schools, the fact that some people can send their kids to private schools becomes less important. Right. If you have if you avoid you the kind of home environments that prevent kids from having ambitions seeing any possibilities for themselves and not having the motivation to try in school and so on then it's less important that that some parents can spend more cho- more time with their children and so on so in in the economic case um, the most important thing is is raising is raising the bottom by contrast in order to achieve something like fair equality of of, of political access It's important not only to improve matters for the poor by providing, in particular, better schools and better access to the means of political expression, but it's also important to constrain the ability of the rich to convert their wealth into dominance of the media and into voices that squeeze everybody else out. So the problem with the political case is that you've got to constrain rather than just improve, and that makes it, I think, conceptually as well as politically uh, a a more difficult problem. Okay, now I'm into the uh, home stretch here. So let me conclude by saying something about how this analysis would apply to some uh, issues that are often seen as raising uh, questions of equality. Um, First a word about education and then an even shorter word about about those CEOs that that Paul Krugman was talking about. Demands for equality in education can arise from several of the sources I've mentioned. Most obvious is the demand, as I said, flowing from fair equality of opportunity, um, which I've already discussed. This doesn't require the same education for all, but it requires the same opportunity to develop one's talents, whatever those may be. So the more talented might qualify for a different kind of education than, than the less talented. So it's compatible with admissions requirements in schools and universities, but not with tuitions that prevent the poor and talented from gaining access to education for which they're qualified. But there's a second demand, uh, and and there's a second demand flowing from the requirements of fairness of the political system that everyone should have at least access to the kind of education that allows them to function politically. But insofar as education is a good that it's the duty of the state to provide, uh, it's under my fifth category here, one that the state ought to provide equally to all in order to meet this requirement of equal benefit. So what does ought to provide equally here mean? I don't think it means that exactly the same education has to be available. Uh, it, 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 what it requires at most is that it has to provide equal access to education for which one is qualified. So, again, the constraints imposed by entrance requirements and so on are, are compatible. But, but entrance requirements, gradated education, tracking, and so on, may be objected to on other egalitarian grounds. Some may object that a policy of providing very unequal levels of education, not more for the rich and less for the poor, but more for the talented and, and less for the untalented, is objectionable because it results in a society divided between elite and non-elite. So we're back to, back to my number two there. In this case, we have a, an example where the demands of equality uh, and what I've called status I think, simply have to be balanced against other values, such as efficiency on the one hand and just the intrinsic value of allowing people to develop their talents and produce the products of that excellence, um, the kind of excellence that higher education can provide. Um, My purpose here is simply to use this example to illustrate my point that the demands of equality arise from different sources and in some cases, as in this one, um, they may they may be in conflict uh, with one another. Now, shifting now finally to the, to the friendly CEOs, the enormously high levels of compensation that corporate executives receive uh, in, in the U.S. and now increasingly abroad as well, following your example, uh, uh, do seem to be objectionable in some way. And they're seen not only as objectionable and a form of inequality, but many people would say an ob- objectionable because of the inequality they involve. So I want to see to what degree that judgment would be supported by the kind of analysis of equality that I've that I've offered here. Well, one reason that might be advanced for trying to tax the very high salaries of corporate officers is that this is the best way to raise needed revenue to provide education for other people. Right? These people could pay tax uh, at less cost if you have if you have an income of. of, of Thirty million dollars doesn't really matter that, that 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 the upper half of that is being taxed at forty percent. Uh, it doesn't seem that, that that's that's a big sacrifice to pay. Um, but that that's not an egalitarian idea. That's merely an idea of looking at the, at the at the wealth of the wealthy as a as a resource that we might be able to draw on, like my first like my first example. So our I don't think that's what we think here. Maybe that's partly why why Senator Kerry is saying he's only gonna he's only going to uh, roll back the tax cuts for the people earning over $200,000 a year um, because he thinks those people can't complain about having to pay it. Uh, but but I think there's also something else there, at least in, in many people's minds, that it's, that it's somehow objectionable that these salaries should be so disparate to begin with. So looking at my list here, what might we say about that? Well, we might say that these Very different levels of compensation are objectionable because over time they'll undermine equality of opportunity. Um, Also because they give some people unacceptable levels of political power in the form of ability to buy influence and so on. So I've already already discussed these problems, so I won't rehearse them here. But we might say, okay, there's one reason. We we shouldn't have these huge salaries because um, they they lead to uh, political action committees and stuff like that. But that doesn't seem to be all of it. Another objection might be that these levels of compensation create a new class of privileged people who live in a style very different from the rest of us ordinary folks, thereby creating uh, objectionable differences in status. It's interesting that 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 this objection doesn't seem to have much political force uh, in, in the United States. Maybe we just don't have an ideal of fraternity. I, I don't know, but it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to uh, to um, to to strike a chord with a a lot of people. It's interesting, this is a bit of a digression here, even though I'm over my time limit, but I'm going to digress anyway. um, To talk about elitism, one of my favorite subjects. Elitism is a term we hear a lot of in political discourse. It's very thrown around. Uh, And it does seem to be used to tap into a strong vein of resentment that's out there against, against the elite. But this resentment doesn't seem to be resentment against the very rich. Uh, rather uh, it seems um, to be against the well-educated
0: uh,
4: <laughs> uh, or the well-educated who are liberal in the American sense of that term uh, I don't see why this is so it's, 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 it's a real it's a puzzle it's a piece of political craftsmanship I guess um, it may be that what people resent is not that some people live better than they do uh, but where they, rent pe- they, they resent people who, whom they take to be critical of the way they live uh, but people who think that they shouldn't drive so much or shouldn't smoke uh, or should do more to prevent global warming. Those are, those are the people who are objectionably uh, elitist. Um, I don't know, on Martha's Vineyard, where I'm living right now, right, that's an elite place. Right? But elitism figures prominently in the, in, the, in the newspaper editorials on Martha's Vineyard. It's, it's, it's thrown around. A last, the last five years, there's been a huge controversy about golf courses. Apparently golf has come back, and I guess you all know this, in a big way, it's, so it's felt that there aren't enough golf courses, and there aren't enough really luxury golf courses, so several developers have proposed rip, tearing down the last remaining woodlands in one of, the, one of the bigger towns in order to build high-end golf courses. These are, these are golf courses where the where the, where the membership fee is already well up into six figures, and they're, they're going to build fancy houses uh, around the edge for the members to stay on. Uh, and the idea is people are going to fly in on their private jets from various places and play golf in these super courses. Now, so there's a debate about uh, about uh, the fact that the zoning and, and town planning committees are try- have tried to stop this uh, these, pro- these these development projects on the grounds that, that tearing down the woodlands would be bad and uh, it would be bad for the water table to have all the uh, the uh, chemicals that they use to keep the keep the greens green and so on. So, one side in this debate has gotten a lot of. Political traction out of accusing the other side of the debate of being elitists. you can guess which one it is, right? It's the golf course developers that charge the the anti-development people as being elitists, and and this seems to make sense to people, right? (laughs) Nobody says, "Come on, give me a break." You know, uh, know, it, 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 it clearly makes sense. So. What? 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 What's the deal? Well, I think the idea is that that the, that the pro-development people, who are most mostly some of them are fairly wealthy retirees, right? But most of them are local artisans, who guys from the '60s, people in the '60s who moved there because they wanted to become carpenters and farmers, uh, rather than. Uh, the, the professors and doctors that their parents wanted them to be, or maybe to some of their, their, their local people who just grew up there and they're, they're farmers and, and carp artisans and so on. And they want to preserve the island the way they remember it and so on. But they're the elitists, right? So yeah. so this go, I just mentioned this as part. That's a digression within a digression. Uh, um, uh, just mention this as supporting my hypothesis that as elitism is used in our discourse, it's been twisted around so the people who are elitists are the people who are critical of the way other people live, not people who who are wealthier. And although although the two are sometimes run together, uh, uh, people try to conceal the fact that they that they aren't really, don't really co- coincide. Now, Chris, it does seem, on the other hand, if you're critical of how other people live on religious grounds, that isn't elitist. Right. Okay, I just want to be clear about that. Um, now, it doesn't seem to me, though, that, that, that our objections, even our objections, to these super high levels of the of, uh, compensation of CEOs, insofar as we do object to them, are, are, are based on elitism of any of these kinds. I, I don't, I don't, it's not that it's going to create a new class and we'll all feel, we'll all feel inferior because we can't live like that. I don't want to live like that anyway, uh, but still I think there's something objectionable about it. Um, well, maybe this shows that there's an egal- another egalitarian idea out there, a reason for objecting to inequality that isn't on my list. Uh, maybe, maybe the idea that these salaries are objectionable reflects a brute idea that everybody's day labor is worth the same reward, or at least not that different. Uh, this idea may have some appeal, but I don't think it's, it doesn't seem to figure in the judgments we commonly make. There are many examples of people with large incomes that, that people in general don't seem to find objectionable in the way that they find these executive compensation. For example, people who win the lottery or sell their houses, having appreciated some minority or you know, some, they're lucky in having turned out to own some very valuable piece of, of property. We don't have the same kind of um, resentment against against that, even though their day labor isn't worth any more than the powers, nor do the large incomes of sports figures, I would say, or in entertainment personalities they seem irritating. They seem to reflect an odd set of values, but I don't think that just because they're unequal, they're, they're, they're that objectionable. Now, maybe I'm not being sufficiently egalitarian there, but I'm, I'm not sure. These people may live in a lavish style, but I don't think many of the rest of us find, you know, the way Michael Jackson lives, uh, it's offensive in a certain way, but it's not, it's not just offensive because he's doing so much... Has such a bigger estate than, than the rest of us do? At least, it doesn't trigger my opinion um, So, what other objection might be? Well, there might be an objection to the high level of executive compensation. That's not really an objection based simply on the quality that results, uh, but on the process that produces it. These levels of compensation are objectionable because they aren't. They represent an abuse of power, or they result from a misallocation of power. It's What's unjustifiable is for executives to have the power to assign themselves and their friends these enormous compensation packages, and the inequalities that result are objectionable because the mechanism that produces them is objectionable in in this way. So this would explain the difference between this case and the other cases I mentioned. Large gains through property transactions or contracts in entertainment and sports don't involve the same kind of abuse. People, i say. Got something out there on the free market? It happened to be worth a lot. They got it. Um, we don't object to that quite so much as people going into the boardroom and saying, you know, I got to retire now, and you ought to give me a really nice package. You gave Joe 60 million. You know, how about 65? Says, oh, sure, sure, Phil. You're a pal. Whatever, whatever happens. So this way of putting the objection has one advantage, I think, of directing our attention toward remedies other than redistributive taxation. Uh, for example, toward legal restrictions on corporate governance. I think it's better and causes less resentment to prevent these large packages from occurring in the beginning rather than trying to tax them away later. So I think that although these levels of compensation raise legitimate egalitarian concerns, the, the thing we ought to think about in them maybe, maybe isn't exactly egalitarian, but it's more a matter of institutional, institutional organization. Okay, so in this lecture and in the process of reflection, um, that I that I that's led up to it uh, I've tried to be very analytical I've tried to look at my own reactions to cases of inequality try to get to the base of you know what am I really worried about here why do I feel the same in this case I try to sort those out And I've come to the conclusion that the idea of equality is not a unified idea that basically everybody ought to be equal and departures from equality have to be justified rather that there are special reasons in different cases for being uh, concerned about inequality for for different uh, reasons, and some of those reasons are not essentially egalitarian. But I, I want to just conclude with a, with a cautionary note that what's true in philosophy may not may, may very well not be true in politics. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning when I was talking about Malawi that. Um, this, this, the difference in life expectancy between the United States and Malawi is, is widely discussed in that literature as the international life expectancy gap, and this term galvanizes people's attention. People feel shocked by it because it's sort of as a, it's seen as a gap, and my analysis would say no, that's not the that's not right way to refer to it. But maybe that's not a good idea. <laughs> because Equality may be doing some work out there, uh, uh, getting people. Energizing their moral reactions because they think vaguely about inequality, uh, uh, vaguely about equality. So maybe it's better that people should be a little confused about equality. I, I don't know. But I've tried to disconfuse you, and I hope in that, uh, in doing so, I haven't made you morally worse. <laughs> <Or politically. laughs>
3: Oh, I'm so going to probably do. I let him feel his own questions. I, I just want to say we're going to go to about 5.30. There'll be a reception for a while outside, so don't feel cheated if we cut you off
4: in about
2: 44 minutes. Okay, yep. Uh, I have a pair <coughs> of questions about the analysis of education, access to education, and entrance decline.
4: Yeah.
2: And to the, the do one is. Seems
4: that Shall I turn this off? Do you think, think people? Have got, I, I can turn it back on if we need to refer to it because it's blinding me. Yes. It seems okay. To
2: justify the entrance requirements, you need to believe that talent is something that's exogenous to
4: inequality, right? So that we can that uh, why you're talented or motivated, you know, to go to a better school or not, uh, has nothing to do with things that you might find objectionable. So the starting point of how far back to the end to go. And the other question is, what does that require of our ability to measure talent? and to know, actually, that someone is more talented than another. And I'm thinking, of course, in education about the you know, most standardized tests, right. and whether those, in fact, are biased in particular manners. So what would the burden be to actually be able to, even if we believe that talent is something that some people have and others don't, but actually being able to get the right measure of that talent? Well, I guess I'm an old-fashioned person, perhaps, and perhaps maybe mistaken, in believing that there are some exogenous talents. Um, but I tried to emphasize in talking about equality of opportunity that I think that, that a system that filters people out according to talent isn't justified unless the people who really have it uh, have an opportunity to display it, get it recognized, and qualify for the advantages, including the, including the educational advantages along the way. So I don't think I'm in a disagreement with you on the first point. Uh, um, now, uh, on the second... Um, I was probably being trying to contrast the um, difficulty of achieving political fairness in, 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 uh, with, with what I thought was not, at least in principle, not quite such a bleak prospect in, on the economic side. Um, I was probably being Pollyanna-ish or, or too optimistic about things like uh, figuring out how to measure talent. So I certainly think our abilities to do that are not very, not very good, um, but um as we say in philosophy, it's an empirical question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I once went to a conference on, on uh, morals and the market it was back in the back in the palmy 1970s. we' had a lot of high-level economists and some lawyers and um, some psychologists. I don't know why quite quite there, including people who did social that social opinion research at Michigan. There's these people who count. You know, I have all these facts. Right? And and some philosophers, and every time we would open our, our mouths about, about how something was unfair or anything, people would say, well, that's just a value judgment. You know, Do you have any, any data to back it up? <laughs> and after a couple of days of this, uh, I got really depressed. <laughs> uh, but, I just, I just have to live at the punchline, but, but, but uh, then I noticed, I was listening to the economists who are, you know, included three people who later went on to win the Nobel Prize, and these are, these are really good, and so not unjustifiably, they were kind of the the, uh, the royalty, the high-status caste in this, in this discussion, I noticed that whenever they got up to a question that was sounded to me really interesting, uh, one of them would say to the other, well, but that's an empirical question. <laughs> so even the economists thought, that's something you can't argue about. That made me feel better. It had just the same effect of saying it's a value judgment. But it, of course, I thought value tests are the primary thing. You can argue about but, uh, <laughs> uh, so I think there's is an empirical question: how, you know, what kind of tests uh, really do identify uh, things. And I, you know, I, I am quick to say I, I could run out the clock by trying to say something, but I, I think the fairest thing is say is just that I don't know. Yeah. So I was struck by your example of uh, the CEO and in the
2: involvement well, in the average worker yeah. and CEO, and I thought maybe there's something else that is making that objection a little bit more. The very income of the CEO is precisely of the most significant to raise the income of, of the average production. In a sense, which is highly other than necessarily the there are expectations for now in North America. And similarly, if you're in Malawi, for example, if the reason people don't have a long life expectancy in Malawi is just a very international economic system that makes it possible for us to have a long a long one, right. then in fact, maybe the claim that that is a gap is a fact. That's right.
4: I, well, I, let's let's start with the Malawi example. I, I I I agree that if it's not just the the disparity, but if there's some unfairness in the system that produces it, then then that would be a question. That might be a question to be calling. I absolutely agree about that. Now, um, but that there there it wouldn't be the fact that we have a high life expectancy. That would be the that would be the thing you'd appeal to. Do. But other facts about what's other facts about what's what's uh, what's going on, um, and in the in the uh, um, the CEO case, uh, I also agree um, that we think, and, and there there it may be, as I try to say, that it, it, it may be that we think that something closer to my partnership analogy holds. That these people are all contributing a lot. Maybe the CEOs aren't contributing all that much, and may have an idea of dessert. You know, what are these people contributing? Maybe you have to reward people education, for sleepless nights or something, but that much. Uh, so it really may be an idea of, of relative deserved that, that we're appealing to. Uh, um, I, I, I put it that way rather than by just saying that we, 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 it, we see it as subjective because we could by reducing them, we could reward these other people more because then the question is what's their claim to be rewarded more? And their cl- I think their claim to be rewarded more isn't simply the humanity- of the workers, isn't really humanitarian. It, it, it's that they're workers. They're doing it. So so I think that it, it might be a case where you say, look, there, there you really have to get down to some idea of relative discernment. Yes? I think this might be sort of
5: following up on the last
6: question. I don't know if I got them all, but when you were talking, I wrote down three, we should be concerned about inequality among at least three sets of people, people competing for the same goods, uh, people who have contact with ah. each other in public spaces because then the status inequality can come into... Um, being and also people who uh, have a relationship to some agent who so has an obligation right. to them. And I, so, and I'm not, pers- I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm persuaded that that's why I was thinking about your urban suburban districts in the same
4: right.
6: state. Right. So here's my hypothetical, which is what makes me um, not so persuaded by that. Supposing first of all, it's in one of the states without an equality of education clause, because they don't no know what happens. Right. And well,
4: then yeah. so we're, we're not going to make a legal argument. Right.
6: Supposing we could fairly segregate the labor market so that the poor people are competing for menial jobs with each other and the rich people for, you know, white-collar jobs and supposing we could eliminate all the public space so that the racial and socioeconomic segregation is complete. You I think obviously this wouldn't improve it or make us less Mark, concerned about no. equality and so I was going to propose, I think this is similar to where Marcus was going, that it's something like the objective fact of their interdependence and their mutual vulnerability that makes us concerned about equality and that that's caused by the fact that they are governed by some significant set of, of uh, norms, of collective norms that are affecting them all, which seems to me different from those
5: those three conditions that you have
4: laid out. Great. Okay, well, let, let me take the, the first part of what you said, which was, a, uh, you said, well, we might suppose the labor markets are segregated. But segregation of the labor market itself is a violation of equality of opportunity. I mean you say
6: but I thought in a different countries example, the reason you wanted to say, you know, you said if we sort of bracket globalization, the reason we're not as concerned across different nations, because you're imagining a separate economy. That's right.
4: But 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 how do you create a separate economy within within Columbus? Right. By 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 just saying, okay, these people we're just not going to give them the education so they can compete. And, and, and we'll only educate these other people. Or we're saying they're not eligible because of a different state. I mean, those things are on the face of them, already violations of equality. So, so seg- labor market segregation within a set of, of unified institutions is, is, is already violating u- u- equality of opportunity. Okay,
7: but then
6: isn't it those unified institutions?
4: Yes, I think, the, unifi- unifi- I think the unified right. institutions are doing the work, right? right. You have to have institutions whose, whose... Part of whose justification is that they provide these people with jobs, right? And then, and then you have to have, you have, to have some institutions that you're doing the work. And, and then you can... Then the the claim against those institutions is different depending on whether you're talking about my number... My number four or my number five, right? So in number four, we have either political institutions or economic institutions that are that are justified. saying, well, yes, they produced outcomes that some people like better than others, right? Some people like the political outcomes other people don't like them, but they had a fair chance to compete to produce them. Similarly, economic. You say, well, with we, this... These, Economic institutions give some people more than others, but um, people all have a fair chance to compete uh, for those. And then you might, you have to, also have something like the difference principle. But I'm just talking about that first part, right? So you have to have some set of institutions whose justification, in part, rests on this claim. It's not going to be justified unless it's a fair competition of some of some sort. So that's one. Number four depends upon common institutions, right? but it isolates a particular kind of claim you might make against, a particular kind of claim that those institutions might have to make for themselves, whereas number five is not a kind of competitive idea that the institutions have to provide a fair class of opportunity. It's that the institutions are obligated to be providing certain benefits, um, health as it might be, or whatever. It's their job to provide clean streets, and so it's it's objectionable if they're providing clean streets in in, uh, Findlay. Know, but not not in uh, Cleveland where people are a different color or immigrants Toledo so you might say well you can collapse you could say yeah, I would accept this but four is really a special case of five because what, what, what four isolates is the requirement that these institutions have to provide you know, fair starting points for people, okay. So, but but I think it's a sufficiently specific and important special case that I factor it out for. It. Now, you said common norms. I'm not quite certain how common norms and common Institution. common uh, institutions are different, but I, I I think it's not just norms, but it's also there's got to be some, some I inst- anyway, so I don't know quite quite why you said norms showing institutions. Well,
7: institutions would be fun Yeah. Um, right.
2: Yeah. I
5: um. This um, continuity you seem to see between global classes and classes within the state. Right. Actually, I'm not oh, we'll that on it. I can't look at that. <laughs> okay. um, and I could think of examples that would make your discontinuity uh, more continuity. I can think of, you seem to allow that the first case um, would uh, allow to make a case for.
1: Uh, humanitarian uh, yeah. aid and so on. Yeah. But I can think of examples for the rest of the purposes that would
5: also um, demand something more of a social justice. I'm thinking for the second the, the second point uh, you mentioned sitcoms, but I'm thinking more about immigration flow, when a certain immigrant population in a certain state is constantly associated with you know, lower status that definitely creates, um, you know, creates uh, humiliating um, like uh, As far as point B, gosh, I can certainly see ways in which, uh, you know, wealthier, state, societies or agents even not non-state but multinational uh, could have yes. incredible power. Yes. Uh, I didn't talk so about
4: that, but I certainly would agree that that's absolutely Well,
5: in case four, I'm thinking institutions is there. I'm thinking about voting systems Institutions. The Security Council, the IMF, about which we were talking earlier. Um, and actually, case five, I was looking for an example. And I thought, current writing is in international political theory on um, intellectual property rights, social impact, and resources. So, I mean, what is it really that creates that distinction? Is it a pragmatic fact that we are better able to help our telecoms? Is it economic? You know, we all pay practices in the state. But you seem to make a different case. Uh, and, and if I had to put a name on the policy, I would say it's more about creative expectations, about hmm. the expectations that a certain job will be. In the field. But if that's the case, I'm thinking, you know, if you interpret case three in terms of colonial and you know, new colonial relationships, then that goes back to the like, and the other thing is the way in which a state's job is defined is different states. state. Yes. So right. okay. that seems to me to make the case for uh, continuity rather than, of course, when I'm in guaranteed healthcare in European countries.
4: And I think right. Instance, yeah, and it's a good okay, good. Very, very, very good. Uh, question, I should, it's very helpful because I didn't mean to have, although I see why one would think this, have it be a general theme that equality only applies within countries and doesn't apply globally. Um, you know, it did seem to me that there's a contrast But going back to my, my list of examples rather than my list of this, that, that, that there was an issue of equality that applies in the um, uh, intra-U.S. Uh, examples of healthcare, for example, that didn't apply uh, in the but I didn't. I didn't get into discussing whether the rest of these apply internationally or not. Although I did mention in talking about um, uh, fairness of uh, uh, I'd I, I call it an opportunity um, that 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 it depends. You know, globalization may mean we have one market, so you have to assess all those institutions as whether they're fair, and so you can make that. Case. So uh, your your point under number three uh, is certainly right. That is that that. Uh, one of the reasons for objecting to the domination c- control of media may be that it gives people in some countries power to influence the political and you know, cultural lives of other countries in a way that's objective. So quite That would be a, a forward-looking objection to inequality. This is not, the, the thing you're really objecting to isn't exactly kind of inequality. That is that, that people should be controlled, have certain aspects of their lives controlled by outsiders. Uh, but, but it's the inequality that produces it. So the inequality becomes objective because it produces this kind of control. And I certainly didn't mean to um, say that that sort of thing certainly couldn't happen. In the so I'm entirely happy to uh, accept uh, uh, this. Now, now I did though, I wasn't certain about the immigrant example under number, number three, uh, <laughs> so number two. Because um, once people immigrate, immigrated, then they're. <laughs> They are you know, within the society. They've got to. they got to um, you know, live in the same space. They got to appear in public. Uh, uh, and compare them naturally. It's not just about envy that they have to compare how they look. How they, look. Um, they have to think about what other people are doing in to than you Um So that does bring it within uh, within the ambit of what I was saying. And then have to say, well, what kind of opportunities do you have offer? How? how what kind of economic oh, is acceptable because let's see if your case Mimikos kind of brought it back within the end that I, I, I was talking about uh, so I said I, what I did say about number three was that I thought that in general uh, proximity was a kind was a kind of factor or not determined but, but it was kind of as I said a empirical question uh, not totally it was also not only what people know about it, but how reasonable is it for them to take it take seriously in a certain way of the difficulty in the way others done have in the way they so I, I don't think I've addressed all of your points but, but are so excellent points and I did not mean to say but just let me say one thing about five there was a there was a bit about this in, in the paper that I didn't actually mention I don't think I ended it out which is uh, relevant to your point about the IMF and other international other international uh, what I want to say on, on my number four, my number five, is that claims of equality the of these two kinds are downstream from the creation of, of, of institutions that not only conceive of themselves, this is addressing your idea by right, the different standards, not only conceive of themselves as having an obligation, but actually do have obligations to all these people, right? Um, and so you, first you have the institutions, and once you got the institutions, then there are claims. To, uh, objections to money uh, treatment that's contrasted with the view quite this well look we ought to have things ought to be more equal so we ought to create institutions to make them more equal i think we ought to create institutions to solve problems maybe to maybe to prevent the imbalances of power or to stop uh, um, uh, uh, famine and, and, uh, and spread disease or whatever and uh, so sort occasionally of institutions might be humanitarian or some other thing, but then once you've got them that they get rise to of, of the last two kinds there. But that's the kind of controversial thing that's going to just repeat. So, back there, yeah.
2: Yeah. I think, I think, anything quite, quite I really appreciate your being so straightforward about your own intuition. Yeah. Makes, mm-hmm. your own intuition. Mm-hmm. But I always see what Have you oh, not perhaps gotten yourself into a position where you have to either grant that there must be another, you need to add another um, item to yeah. this right? Or give up your intuition that, that there's something. In, yeah, in oh. the CEO case, that's what I would have thought you have to say it, i something in that. Well,
4: what I what I what I did say was that um, there are objections from my list. That is that that is. The but re- I thought there was something a residuum over all yeah, well, those. That well, that I'm worried about whether, I'm worried about whether there is a residuum yeah. and and. Uh, I, I sort of feel like I, I'm, I'm unclear concerned. about it, but, I, but I, I, I was confessing uncertainty here, but I, I was inclined to want to try to, you know, first I tough it out and say, no, there isn't. And then keep kind of pushing it. But I, I think um, the, the residuum, I, I, if I had to say what the residuum was, um, I suppose and, I'd say that it's something maybe, maybe it's something like well, it's different and so, yeah, it's okay to have unequal rewards but there's got to be some reason why they're bad right? uh, and, and either that has something to do with social usefulness it's very important to reward these people because that, without that we aren't going to get what we need or there's got to be some, some rationale for it right? but then it's not the inequality as such well but, that, but see that, that does I mean, I, that, that's what I would that, that would not be a way of preserving my, my, my framework but but um, uh, th- this has to do with the rubberiness of, 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 of number five, which there was more meaning in the earlier version of Why do we need special justification? You, you, you see, there's some pull towards egalitarianism. Look, why, why, do, you need, uh, why do you need some special cases, right? And as I said, Rawls, he talks about this, these things, as cooperative enterprises for mutual advantage. We're all participants, right? We all make society worse by obeying the law, being willing to, to do our part, put our shoulder to the wheel, try to get a job, do what, to, to accept the rules of economy, and so on. So we're all cooperating members, and as cooperating members, we are free and equal citizens, as he says, and looking at it just in that way, you might say, well, why should any of us have more than any of the others? Uh, it, it are all required to participate, and so on. And then he has to say, you've got to give some rationale to move away from the benchmark of equality. So, but I said, well, that's that's a somewhat controversial idea that, that there isn't any inherent reason for rewarding some people more than others, except insofar as it's efficient to do it. So I, I, didn't, I didn't want to dismiss that. I mean, I'm not, I am not kind of roles in, uh, But I didn't want to push it too hard into this, because I, I think it's a little bit weird. I guess if that's why I have to go, that's why I Yeah, back to not central to this discussion be
2: a proposition that theft is just? Because some people, obviously, who are superior in uh, love, or status, or color, or life expectancy, or health care, or education, and uh, you have to steal some of that from them.
4: Uh, no, I, I'm not in that. of
1: theft. How can you avoid it? Of um, course, of the taking right? Well, no, like that.
4: I, know, I understand. <laughs> I agree with you. But there's a great book, a really wonderful book that I recommend, called, uh, written by Thomas Nibble and, Engel and uh, Liam Merkin, called It's About Taxation. It's a short book about, about just taxation, uh, the title of which will already give away It's called The Myth of Ownership. And uh, Murphy and Bagel say, in the, in the early, in the first chapter, the following, they say, Discussions of taxation in American politics go off on the wrong foot from the very beginning by assuming that people's pre-tax income belongs to them. And the question is, how much is the government going to take away? This is a fundamental error from which the discussion never recovers. Now, I think that's, that's sort of a, I, I, I'm not saying that because they say it's an error, it's an error. I'll try to explain why they think it's an error. But I think there's a big a conceptual gap here. The, the, I'm, what I'm. Well, put it in terms of Rawls, what Rawls is talking about, that, that's essentially a Rawls' idea. But the question of justice is the question about what should the basic structure of society be. The basic structure of society, in one defines the rules of property. So the basic structure says what belongs to you and what doesn't belong. And one of the things you have to decide whether the basic structure is just or not is whether, or what level of taxation and transfer do you have within it, right? So all those questions have are, are part of answering what do people actually own? So I'm not, I'm not talking about taking things away from people that they really own. I'm asking, what are people entitled to? So I'm saying, what should the law... The, the law says, you know, what what theft is stealing things that the law says are yours. Right? And so I'm talking about what, what should the basic structure of society be? that is what should it say is mine? And what should it say is yours? How much of my, how much of my income can the state legitimately say is mine? Uh, it, I, I, that, so, so, so that it's a prior the, question step by the definition. Well, I know that, that, that I, 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 I'm I sitting I, 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 uh, I, I, I knew that that was the issue between. That's why I mentioned this thing. So, so when I when I mentioned this book to somebody I knew, uh, this is a, a, a libertarian friend of my daughter's out in Silicon Valley. He said, but "Doesn't that just beg the question at, at the outset by, by, by saying that that um, you, know, you can't say?" I said, "No, from their point of view, the other." So she begs the question by saying, "Look, the way we've got things defined now, uh, the way the laws have, that's what people really own, right? and any deviation from that is theft." Um, and they say, "No, look, the question of justice is the question of what assignment of property rights is just, uh, and and that in answer to the question, well, the one I have got is really mine." Um, Presupposes an answer to it. It doesn't just say there is some set of laws that says it's not. It says there's a set of laws that says it, and those are the laws that you know, we ought to have. Uh, it's really modern. Um, so so that's what one of the disagreements. So I'm not, and also I should say, finally, one last point is Murphy and Nagel's books about taxation. So it's a really interesting book. Uh, what they argue is that you can't look at taxation in, in separation from where the benefit, where where the where the, where the payout goes, and when the question of justice uh, applies to the relationship between the benefits people get and and, and what they have to pay to get them. It's an but in one way, citing their book, well, I cited it for its kind of rhetorical value in bringing out this, this this agreement. But in one way, by citing their book, is 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 a, is, a, is a distraction from what I was saying. Because although in our political discourse, um, discussions of equality most often come up in, in connection with discussion of taxation. So that's not a place. I, I, I'm inclined to think that's not that's not a that's not that's not a healthy way to, to talk about it. As I said at the end of the C the CMO, question isn't it? isn't how much. It's not good to start by talking about taking things away from people. The question is, what services do we have to provide to people so that they don't suffer? So much as a result of not having their income, or what kind of income should we be allowing, you know, setting up things, how should we set things up so that people get one kind of income rather than to begin with? So I think that the, the prior question is uh, the question of public benefits, providing public benefits, and, and, and providing uh, the sort of rules according to which people's incomes are returned. Is, is, is more important than looking taxation. Of course, you can say, well, look, so if you're going to provide public services, somebody's going to pay for it. Um, and so then are not talking about taxation directly. And that's it sure. um, but what's the argument that they ought to pay The argument they ought to pay for them is, look, well, unless we provide um, schools, then we don't have a system of fair uh, quality of opportunity. So it comes back to the right. The criticism of Rawls is from the right. Well, it's fine to be in favor of equality of opportunity, but he's in favor of equality of result. Well, look, if you're just in favor of equality of opportunity, you got to provide schools, you got to provide other things. Otherwise, the stuff that you've gotten in the competition isn't isn't fairly done. The rule, the rules that allow you to benefit in that way aren't really aren't really fair rules, because least that's that's the, that's the argument. So I like I'm like. Uh, working, uh, wanted to push the prior push the question back to the prior stage of saying what would what was fair rules for the funding discussion? Um, I
1: actually wanted to ask about fair equality of opportunity. Yeah. Um, it seemed to me that as I remember the where Rawls brings it up, he actually discusses the difference between fair equality of opportunity and a certain kind of formal equality of opportunity that just like non discrimination. And I was wondering whether you could get out of your number four, which is just, you know, the, the, the kind of intuition that maybe even people with libertarian sympathies who believe in competition seem to be you were trying to do that. In fact, you just did that a second ago. Uh, I was wondering whether you can really get fair equality, a demand for fair equality of opportunity out of that, or rather, no, those people are gonna say, no, look, all I want is the more stripped down, formal kind of equality that of non-discrimination. Right. You wanna to get to this other thing you're gonna to need to bring in, and this is what I thought actually Rawls does, you're gonna to need to bring in this conception of society as this cooperative enterprise. And that's the only thing that's gonna actually ground fair equality of opportunity. So it really is part of that conception, and that when Rawls pushes that in as a writer on the difference principle, he really is giving us something much more substantive in the way of this idea of deserve and us all being contributing members, and it's not merely a matter
4: of fairness as construed by libertarian. libertarian. Well, I'll, I'll come back to the libertarian point, because I, I think I didn't fully answer the previous question, but, but um, I think you're right that insofar as Rawls gives an argument for the um, the right of fair quality opportunity. Uh, it presupposes that everybody has a claim on these resources, and uh, um, they can't object to inequalities, provided that they're benefiting from the inequalities, and they have just as much of an opportunity as anybody else to earn. But I also think, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to try to try to categorize one view as libertarian or one view as libertarian, but I do think that that. Um, that idea, not simply the weak idea of um, uh, equality of opportunity, but I think quality of opportunity is non discrimination, but even the stronger, even something like the stronger idea, kind of, what Rawls calls fair quality of opportunity, has intuitive bases that are much wider than, than this uh, particular Rawls idea. Uh, for example, uh, it, you might believe in, uh, start with an idea of dessert think that what people deserve to be rewarded in, in accordance with their contributions, in mm-hmm. accordance with, the, with, their, with their distinguished talents, the and the quality of what they do. Um, but if you're going to, that's your justification for inequalities, uh, then then you, you you need to show that that, that, the, that the inequalities that we're getting going you know, going back to my answer to the very first question. That the inequalities that we're getting really are responses to to, to talent and not simply to unfair competitive advantages. About so Rawls is not a dessert theorist. It's uh, a very, very, harsh thing to say about the idea of dessert. Um, But, but uh, I think a dessert theorist should accept not simply the non-discrimination idea, but also um, the idea that, uh, that we ought to have some fair quality it. So I do think it ha- I do think it's, it's intuitively broader than that. But just having mentioned this idea of dessert, though, I. Uh, um, wanted to add one thing to, to my response to the previous question, which which is, I think, I suppose, exposing, although I don't agree with everything Rawls says, exposing the, the, the nub of my rawls in, uh, credentials. I, I, I see it, not, not everybody would see it this way, as one of the things that's crucial to Rawls' point of view, that he takes, as he puts it, the basic structure as subject. The whole question is what the basic structure ought to be like, and that, and that there aren't prior ideas of so people already have rights. If you already have property rights, and what you ought to do is create basic structures that enforce the property rights people already have, right? Property rights are the creation of social institutions, and so it's until you define what kind of social institutions you can have, the whole question of what property rights people have is up for grabs. Same thing with dessert. He doesn't think there's a pre-institutional idea of dessert, and we ought to set up institutions so as to allow people to be rewarded according to their dessert. Rather, dessert is defined by legitimate expectations under, under just institutions. So you first have to decide what institutions have to be like, and those institutions define, look, if you do this, then you'll be entitled to this reward, and so you you, you then deserve that reward um, in, in, because these rules say that you ought to get it, and you did what was, what the rules said you had to do, and those rules are justified. So so the idea of bringing um, seemingly pre-institutional ideas like rights and um, uh, desert uh, within the, the, the structure of an institutional argument is, is I, think it's, I think, it's the most fundamental um, uh, element. Quite apart from whether you accept the difference principle or anything else, that seems to me the most fundamental move in the, in, in the, in the structure. And libertarianism um, is an interesting view because it, it, it covers a number of different, different uh, things. insofar as, in as it starts off with a, with a pre-given set of rights of saying those version of libertarianism and then we just here have a head-to-head conflict about, look, are there these pre-institutional rights or not? Um, but it calls itself, it doesn't call itself natural rights theory, it calls itself libertarianism because the idea of individual freedom is very important. Well, you can't then say, well, how is individual freedom respected? Well, that's one of the demands you make on institutions. They should be set up so as to allow people to realize their aspirations to be able to have choice about their conceptions of the good, all these things. So you have to see, look everybody has that claim to try to have their to, to exercise liberty in the sense it's valuable and the question that, that poses a question of what institution should we have that would be respective of liberty? So there's a sense in which that idea isn't shut out, the way in which the idea of, of pre-existing rights is kind of closed off by the basic by the basic move there. The idea that liberty is important isn't closed off. but on the other hand, it has to be then argued on the merits. Look, which ways of setting up institutions actually uh, is most respected of liberty, and that might go, you know, then, then you've got an argument that it might go in a more libertarian direction, as we now would call it, or a less libertarian direction. But anyway, you know, I just wanted to describe that difference, yes. And I'll go uh, back to that. I just might just go back over, uh, comment, but
7: I was thinking about the CEO. We can't hear you in the back. Thinking about the CEO case. Yes, okay. um, when you discuss laws in the context of the CBL case, you reiterated your worries about his claim that society is a cooperative endeavor right. and we all should get an equal share of it. But there's a venture,
4: at least as a, a starting point, we all have equal clarity yeah. on the product.
7: Yeah. But even if you have rules about that, you could say something very similar about the corporation. Yes. The corporation that's what I'm collective enterprise and that yeah. even if there might be not everyone should get exactly the same share. Yes. it's sort of that mind-boggling yes. that in the last whatever 30, 10 years yes. 20 years you know suddenly the workers average worker has come to contribute so much less to
4: the uh, collective endeavor I, I, I absolutely agree with that yeah. I, I meant to say that in response to an earlier question yeah. that, that there was a question of it uh,
2: the firm yes, yes, I agree. With yes. I agree. But, but then
7: I have another question. That was about the sort of the two societies, yes. and um, once they come into interaction with yeah. each other, then something changes. Yes. And I was wondering about well, what the nature of the interaction? What do you think? Uh, I was trying to think of an example. One would be two societies that haven't been interacting, but then suddenly the rich society picks up the island, the place the poor island as the place to go on a vacation and they get into connection uh, or interaction just through this sort of going on a vacation there. Of course you get then the difference in status and you have the the possibility of some sort of abuse of power. But then uh, compare that to a case and now I was having a I look for time to of an example, but but the interaction becomes more like um, the rich society is taking sort of not relying simply on the service work of the in, in, in in when they uh, go on vacation there, but they are more taking whatever uh, natural resources or dressing, putting factories there and using the ch- cheap labor and then there will be a sort of continuation of the rich country, sort of taking the natural resources of whatever is produced in this country and compounding the value <coughs> of it. In some sense that the people who are mining or, or whatever they are doing in the poor country by getting unfair share of whatever the final product
0: is.
1: Well, let's see. Let's
4: let, let's let's take let's take the two cases in turn. Now, the first case, I was so hypnotized. by think about the second case. I now lost track. First case, they just go on
7: vacation. Oh yes, right. That's right. That's right.
4: Well, certainly. I mean, I once went on a vacation to a Caribbean island. I can't. I, I, I now remember the name. It wasn't one of the famous ones. But anyway, I wouldn't go back mm-hmm. uh, because I just didn't like being in there. Mm-hmm. the situation. And, and uh, on the other hand, the, you might say it wasn't a case of injustice in the, of the local institutions because I mean, they weren't responsible for money wealth. Um, the the government wasn't, you know, the, the justice of their institutions wasn't called into question by how, by what money salary is in the United States, um, nor does it seem to me that there wasn't, I, I would say, necessarily. So I thought it's, 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 it has a kind of objective. The of inequality of the state is sort of just not, not, not a political one, didn't like, didn't like but I wasn't certain that, that it was somehow some objection to their institutions or our institutions that it allowed that to happen. But in the second case, I do think that that's objective. Uh, and I would be most inclined to put it first just as, as the person here suggesting, it would be in my heading. Power that's exercised by one society or another by forcing them to accept um, whatever terms they might, they might think about. Uh, so, uh,
2: so to give up their resources. I, think, I guess I'm going to say it's mainly a, a, a,
4: a matter of control. And you could say, well, it's not, if you want to move beyond that, it's not a matter of control, uh, it's a matter of. of uh, Inequality in some deeper te- sense, you have to get some sense of what are the proper terms of, 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 of market? What, what, what should the market be? Uh, and I, I find it a little hard to come up with a, 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 an answer to that question, which is as solid as my, as my sense that there's something objectionable about it. Whereas in the case of the exercise of power, I don't have any, you know, that doesn't you know, seem to something very solid. Maybe, maybe you might say that in the way you did at the end of the example of uh, cooperation within the firm as saying, well, you know, we don't have a clear idea about exactly what people ought to pay, but we know it shouldn't be that um, So maybe you might say, look, the relative prices of resources and, and industrialized goods, you know, maybe it should be, you know, it's okay for it to be different, but it shouldn't be that big. But I don't have quite as clear a sense of what the, Relative market valuations of these different things really ought to be or what would be a fair distribution. So, I'm inclined to think that my my sense that this that the relationship between the countries is, is more than any kind, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm certainly happy to be correct. One more one, question,
0: one last question. And then we'll go to a ask
2: another question.
5: Um, I thought of another reason why someone might object to inequality, and I don't know if you'd accept it as a reason for it to be assumed by one of the ones you mentioned, but what if you say, look, if there's equality, especially if it's extreme, especially if it's systematic in certain ways, there's, that's excellent, the existence of the inequality is excellent evidence that some, some group or some individuals have suffered an active injustice that needs rectification. I mean, if you look around at the really big
4: kinds of inequality does. in very many cases. Um, and I think that's going to play a role in some of the examples that I mentioned, that is the reason why we feel concerned about, about you know, inequality between you know, life expectancy between blacks and whites, uh, is that we know where it came from. So it's not just that, it's the expression of something else but then if something else is objectionable, part because it's a violation of one number five, the violation of equal sure. concern. So I, I would pull that out of it to some degree. Um, but let's see, there's one other feature example I wanted to mention. Um, remember that... Uh,
2: let's see, it's, it's, it's escaping me. Uh, remember that... Well, I think Both, it's sort
5: well,
4: of probative, yeah, well, probative value. And yeah, well, I mean, it isn't... It, it's, it's objectionable... It's objectionable if the life expectancy of women is higher than men. But but if it were the reverse, it would be more objectionable. (laughs) Because we have a suspicion about where it came from. We have no tendency to to think that if men are living longer than women, um, it's because um, uh, more more resources have been put into health care for men's illnesses. Women, but in fact, what we've got is that women are living longer than men, even though more, <laughs> more resources have been put Although in. Although, actually, so. in
5: that case, that that, does, that disparity has something to do with the much higher rate um, by death or homicide of
7: men. Yes, yeah, that's right, really, it does
4: have that, that's probably, So, it's not, but, but also, among people I know this is any total evidence, but uh, none of them have died from homicide. <laughs> and almost all of the mothers live longer than the fathers. <laughs> uh, so I don't know quite why that is, but it's not objectionable. Uh, and so that, that's, that's an example. I would say, look, it's not the quality of objectionable. It has to do with it's, it's objectionable on drugs of quality. It has to do with the thought about what produces
3: that. Let's, let's end it there. Thank you. Uh... <laughs> To reception. As says, you're all
2: welcome.
4: Uh, my house tonight, PLA. Thank you very much for your questions. One always learns a lot, and, and, and I managed to make it through without falling can. down.
3: This is the. Uh, it's hard to participate in Ohio. This is our the- a little a little game.
2: Yeah, I saw that. That was great. It Well, uh, yeah. some people do that. <laughs> <laughs> they <they're> more <laughs> <complications>.
4: Oh, yeah. okay. I suppose now. I don't
2: know what I haven't been there. Time, but I would imagine that. I would kind of think that. Yeah, yeah. i would to outsell. right. I'm,
0: sure. I'm, sure. I'm, I'm,
2: sure. so I'm, I'm going here. Uh,
1: we don't need her. Man? Yeah.
2: I use my stuff there for the It won't Yeah. Okay. the okay. okay. restaurant. Okay.
4: <laughs> yeah. have, you, have you heard of this <laughs> The
2: big <the, the>, <laughs> <video>? of ownership. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't mention. it. <laughs> it's a book about that section. I have mentioned. That's a very <great> good question. Hey, <laughs> yeah, it comes to I I are yeah. uh, so you can do uh, uh, that uh, right. right. so you do that me that you can do that you can that you can do that that
4: do